Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I uh, am personally very excited about how God has used the, um, uh, those connections and, and given us the opportunity as a church to be involved in, um, in, in the lives of those, uh, the kids. You know, he mentioned it's a family environment, uh, you know, um, and that's the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be, a family environment, right? And so it's, uh, it's really good, and Christ is at the center of that. So, all right, it's 17 minutes after 11, and we are in... Um, our three-year journey through the Bible, we are at a high point, and uh, I want to, to uh, take us into uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and chapter 7 this morning. That's where we're at, uh, but I just want to pray with you before we uh, jump in there and ask the Lord to teach us this morning and to speak through his word. This is... This is what it's, it's all about. It's nothing that I have to say, nothing that I can think of or uh, come up with uh, beyond observations that I can make or that you can make along with me from his word because it is the word of God that God uses to speak to hearts and change lives. And he's changed my life. I know he's changed uh, your, your, your lives as well. And trust we trust this morning that as we... Look at his word together. That we're going to um, we're going to be impacted by by his word this morning. So, would you pray with me, Lord in heaven? Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to be here together today. Thank you for each one here. We are here by your grace, Lord. As uh, we want to be sure and acknowledge that. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here today, for the presence of your Spirit in our lives, in our midst, convicting us of sin, convincing us of the Savior. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to build your church for your glory in this world, that we would be a part of uh, building your kingdom and not uh, trying to press forward in our own agendas. We thank you for the incredible opportunity we have to serve you as our King and our Lord and our Savior. And we just pray, dear Lord, that you would open up our understanding this morning, open our our minds, and Lord, move our hearts today uh, as we consider these uh, amazing and wonderful portions of your word together in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were looking at the 10-plus years that David spent as a um, fugitive fleeing the wrath of Saul. And uh, I mentioned last week and perhaps the week before, if you're traveling along in this journey with us, good idea to be reading the Psalms. Many of the Psalms are Psalms of David. 73 of them are uh, that we know for sure. And many of those psalms are, are specifically, uh, there's a specific note attached to them 
ascribing them to specific times in David's life and specific circumstances or situations that he found himself in and how God used those situations and how God brought him through those, those times. And, and uh, there's a number of those that are from that period in David's life when he was a fugitive. And we get to, it's like God in, in some of his, the Psalms of David pulls back the curtain, allows us to see what was going on inside of David's heart during those times. And that is an incredible privilege. You know, that's something we should not take lightly. That is an incredible opportunity to read uh, not, just the, not just the thoughts of David's heart, but, but God's working in David's heart and life in those times in his life. Because we all can benefit from knowing how God works in our lives and our hearts in times of adversity. And you might not have a, a king chasing you around trying to kill you, but I'm sure, uh, as even as uh, uh, Josh has attested earlier today, that uh, the enemy does pursue you and he does uh, rough you up and uh, push, presses you. And, and sometimes we think that that means that God's not at work. But God is very much at work in the adversity of our lives. So, so that, those fugitive years were, were our focus last um, um, week as we kind of looked at in one kind of a swooping message the last 14 chapters of 1 Samuel up to Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, 31, which is the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 31, uh, if you've read it, and I hope you have, you have this, just this um, sad commentary as we see Saul and the beloved, his beloved son Jonathan and Jonathan's, two of Jonathan's other brothers and many of the choice warriors of Israel as we see their bodies littering the, the, the fields of Mount Gilboa, laying dead. On the ground there, it's just a tremendous loss of a ba the battle of Gilboa where the, um, the Philistine armies um, decimated um, the armies of Israel. That's how 1 Samuel ends. And 2 Samuel begins with David receiving the news. He has just won a, a great battle against a band of Amalekites who had raided his camp while he was off fighting the Philistines. Long story, you need to read it. Um, uh, the, the, but while he was off fighting the Philistines, this here band of Amalekites came in and they took everything, including all the women and children. But the Lord enabled David to rescue everything and everyone and get it all back. And then three days later, they're there at the camp, uh, still just thanking the Lord for, for victories. And this young guy staggers into the camp with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. That's how he's described in Second uh, Samuel chapter 1. And he comes bearing the news from Mount Gilboa. And he tells David, everyone is dead. And he tells David that he himself personally finished off Saul as an act, of what he considered to be an act of mercy which, of course, was a lie. He made that part up, hoping to gain some kind of commendation from David, which was a bad plan. 
because David has just spent over 10 years of his life fleeing from King Saul and has had multiple opportunities to take him out himself. And he never would do it. And the reason he would never do it is he said over and over again, I will not put forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now this young Amalekite staggers into the camp to tell David, I did it. I was the one that actually finished Saul off. Well, he didn't get the results he was hoping for. David said, your blood on your, is be on your own head, for with your own mouth you have testified against yourself, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. That was the end of that guy. Um, the rest of the chapter, chapter uh, 1 of 2 Samuel, um, is the lament that David wrote for Saul and for David. And we all know of great, David's great love for Jonathan, or for, yeah, for Jonathan and for Saul. I don't think I got that right. Um, David's great love for Jonathan, the covenant between them. We talked a little bit about that. And also of his respect for Saul as the Lord's anointed, even in spite of Saul's behavior. But the thing that seemed to really, really bother uh, David the most, and, and I, when I, as I say that, I mean, like, the death of Jonathan must have just been unbelievably difficult for him. But the thing that seemed to really bother David the most was the thought of the news reaching uh, the Philistine press. You know, he, he could picture the women uh, dancing in the streets in Ascalon and Gath and places like that because of the, the certainty that the Philistines would conclude that in defeating the Israelites and in taking out the king and in winning that great battle, that that reflected very poorly on Yahweh, the God of Israel. And, uh, and it kind of does, you know. When we who uh, march under the banner of his name, the name of the Lord, uh, suffer those kinds of, of defeats, and this was a, and if you study Saul's life, you know, it's like his whole life was a catastrophe. Um, it does reflect on the Lord. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that God seems to be okay with that. We'd like to think sometimes that God's reputation is completely tied up in our behavior. <laughs> and I guess it is in a way, but in another way it's not. And, and the way that this shows up mostly, I think, is when we uh, when God disciplines us. Because God's truth is true and God's justice is justice and God is the ultimate judge. And there's no escaping that. Anyways, we'll, we need to move on because we've got a lot of ground to cover. David uh, pulls himself together and he inquires of the Lord and the Lord sends him to Hebron. You can study the geography of the promised land and you'll... You'll uh, know where Hebron is in southern Judah there. And uh, he, so he goes there. The Lord tells him to go there, and he goes there. And the people of Judah anoint him king. Or you could say they ratified Samuel's anointing of him as king. And uh, in response to this, the people of the northern tribes of Israel, uh, namely Abner, 
And this is where the, we've heard it in Abner before. You may recall it was Abner who was Saul's chief commander, was the one who brought David with Goliath's head in his hand to Saul after the battle of David and Goliath. And it was also Abner who David scolded in the wilderness when him and Abishai snuck into Saul's camp and took uh, Saul's spear and his water canteen from beside Saul's head during the night and then stood across the, the valley in the morning and, saw, and David scold, scolded Saul there and said, you deserve to die. You are supposed to protect the king which is really kind of ironic uh, for a lot of reasons. One, one reason it's ironic is you wonder how come Abner survived Mount Gilboa. That's one question that should come to our minds, but there are others as well. Anyways, we don't have time to linger about that. He takes Ishbosheth, which is the remaining son of Saul, which would mean he would be in line, uh, humanly speaking, for the, the throne, and he anoints him, or has him anointed in uh, Maenaim in Gilead, and what follows is a series of confrontations between the, the between the north and the south, or between uh, uh, you thought you know civil war in the U.S. You know the north and the south, right? This is the original uh, north and south civil war, okay, between the northern tribes and the tribe of Judah in the south, and David's been anointed king in Judah, uh, Ishbosheth uh, anointed king over the, the northern tribes by Abner, uh, who never consulted God in any of that. Abner is a, is a character in and of himself. Second uh, Samuel 3.1, take a look at this. 2 Samuel 3, 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That's kind of a concluding commentary uh, uh, in 2 Samuel 3, 1 about what happened after Saul uh, was, uh, was, uh, was killed in Gilboa. And uh, so... Abner is uh, this, the commander of Saul who becomes uh, the, uh, you know, the force to be reckoned with in the north. David also had a commander-in-chief. His name was Joab. He was David's nephew. He had a couple of brothers as well that we know from Scripture. Their names were Abishai and Azahel. Azahel, you may recall, if you've been reading through this material, Azahel was uh, his claim to fame was that he could run like a deer, like a gazelle, it says. He was like a gazelle. And so he's chasing Abner in battle, and Abner's probably around 50 years old. And you get a guy, Azahel, probably in his 20s, chasing a guy in his 50s, right? And he's relentless. He's not letting up. And Abner, you've read it, right? Abner keeps saying, turn to the, turn to the right or turn to the left. Don't, you know, you cut, break off here. And Azahel says, no way, buddy. And Abner takes the butt end of a spear and kills Azahel, Joab's brother, Joab, the commander of David's army. Um, well, long story short, uh, uh, um, Joab later kills Abner in a treacherous move after David has made a peace pact with Abner because Abner had made motions that he was going to bring the northern tribes in under the kingship of David. And, uh, and which was a good move. He was doing it for the wrong reasons. 
because just like Saul was all about Saul, Abner was all about Abner. They were actually cousins. Same gene pool, same structure, same uh, prominence, same dominance, same uh, hunger for aspiration and, and uh, recognition. And you can pick all that out of the text as you read it. Um, all of this stuff is important. We don't have time to dig it all in on Sunday mornings or dig it all out. You've got you've to dig it all out yourselves. But I, I will tell you that uh, Joab is an interesting character. Uh, Joab, uh, David, uh, considered his act of killing Abner a treacherous act. And um, if you read through, you will find at the end of David's life, Joab betrays David and puts, throws his support behind Adonijah against Solomon. And Joab is the one, the character, the Old Testament character, that ends up dying with his hands on the horns of the altar in the tabernacle. And he was killed, and it referenced there, if you read through to that reference, I don't know, I can't remember exactly where that is. Uh, yeah, you can email me. Um, it mentions the death of Abner. It mentions there that one of the reasons that Joab was sentenced to die was because of what he had done to Abner. It's all of this stuff. All of this stuff, I, t I tell you. Uh, remember Adonai Bezek. Remember that name. Judges chapter 1. Don't forget it. You'll have reason to recall it as you go through your life. You'll have all kinds of opportunities where you'll be able to say yourself, remember Adonai Bezek. Do you know who Adonai Bezek was? Of course you don't because he's not a name like Moses or David or whatever that we remember. Adonai Bezek was the man who said, 70 kings without their thumbs and toes have scraped for crumbs under my table. You back to Judges chapter 1, you read it. What goes around comes around. It's all about God's justice. And we can read through here and you, you miss this stuff if you don't watch for it. It's very interesting. Abiathar the priest. Remember last week how Saul killed the 70 priests at Nob? Only, only one man escaped, which fulfilled the prophecies to uh, Eli back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that only one of his, only, there would only be one to escape. That one was Abiathar. He became a key priest under, under David. Abiathar joined Joab in his betrayal of David at the end of David's life. A lot of the Psalms, when you read about, you can read Psalms that David wrote about the people in his life that betrayed him. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, significant for a lot of reasons. For one thing, betrayal is a part of living in this world. You will be betrayed. People will betray you. Friends will, will let you down. And as you come into the New Testament, a lot of the, 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 the Psalms, and I can't remember which one it is now, which one of the Psalms where David talks about being betrayed and it transcends his time period and situation and goes all the way to the New Testament to somebody that we know as Judas Iscariot, right? These things are all prophetically relevant as well as being particularly relevant to our daily lives as we face these things ourselves. It's really, it's really quite, quite, 
something when you dig in and study it. Abner was the son of Ner, brother of Saul, father, uh, Saul's father of Kish. Um, David himself called him a great man, uh, a prince. Those are David's own words. Um, in the wilderness, he said to Abner, he said, uh, you deserve to die if you didn't have not prote protected the king. And he said, who is like you among all of Israel? It was like Saul, right? Head and shoulders above all of Israel. He was a, a spectacle of a man. And ambitious. But the problem was he was like Saul in other ways too. He was all about himself. And you can see these, these stories and these examples playing out throughout the pages of the Old Testament scripture as uh, examples for us, it says in 1 Corinthians, so that we can be warned by them. Don't be like Saul and Abner, um, who were all about themselves. Anyways, uh, the northern tribes, uh, David writes a lament for Abner too. And uh, because he really, he tried to basically bring Abner in. They, they say that Joab killed Abner because he, of uh, uh, revenge, because Abner had killed his, his brother, his younger brother, Azael. But uh, uh, the historian, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus claimed that the real reason that Joab killed Abner was because of uh, Abner was his um, rival. Abner was Saul's commander-in-chief. Joab was David's commander-in-chief. And there's probably a lot to that. David goes on record right, right at the front and says, this was not my idea. Okay? He wanted the north to know it. And apparently the north was satisfied because, here we are, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, Behold, we are bone, your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out the, the, and brought in Israel. Led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So this will be like the third time that David's been anointed. But these are ratifying, right? This is all of Israel recognizing and acknowledging David as their king. So this is huge. And it says there that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years he, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, and now that and now he's entering into uh, uh, thirty-three years as the king over all of uh, of Israel, all of the tribes. And the text goes on from there to tell how David then took Jerusalem. The next thing in 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 chapter uh, five, second Samuel chapter five, is David taking. Uh, Jerusalem. Now, up until this time, they had been unable to take Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a mountain fortress city occupied by the Jebusites, and that's important. The city wasn't even called Jerusalem. Uh, it was, it, they called it Jebus. And uh, the Jebusite, uh, let me read a quote to you from the uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary. 
Easton's Bible Dictionary says Jerusalem stands on the edge of one of the highest tablelands in Palestine and is surrounded on the southeastern and southern and western sides by deep and precipitous ravines. It's a fortress city. And by this time, Israel has been in the land for roughly around 400 years, and they've been unable to take this fortress right in, in the heartland of the promised land. And they've been unable to take it. And uh, uh, but David takes it. And it's a, big, it's a big deal. If you go back to Genesis, and I'll put it up for you, or I'll get, actually I'll get David to put it up for you. On that day, Genesis 15, listen, mark these words. This is the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, the last mentioned. Last mentioned. This has that feel to it. This is victory. This is fulfillment. This is the promise being fulfilled. They've taken Jerusalem, and it is a big deal. All of Israel knows it's a big deal. David knows it's a big deal because it is a, a really uh, big deal. And this is where Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem. The city of peace. That's what the word means. And um, David makes it his capital. Makes it the capital. And thanks to Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre, builds a palace. David has a, now has a palace in Jerusalem. Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And the chronology here is not always the way we would like it to be. Because uh, a lot of times biblical writers, chronology wasn't the most important, it wasn't as important as the, as the thematics, right? So, um, you know, when exactly, you know, these things happen in the sequence, not necessarily always in sequence that they're recorded. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, the important thing is, is that this is Jerusalem, and now David is living in a palace, Second Samuel chapter 5, 11, 12, the king of Hiram, um, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and marked this last statement, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Take note of that, because that's important. Why was God doing what he was doing for the sake of his people, Israel. David's kingship is not about him. It's not about himself. Saul was all about Saul and Abner was all about Abner, but David was called by God to be all about God and his people. You know, it's supposed to be the same for you and I. It's supposed to be Joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you, right? God comes first, others second, and then put yourself last. Paul says that. Put yourself last. Philippians chapter 2, put yourself last. And that's what God's intent was uh, for David in establishing king, 
him as king over Israel. Because don't forget, all along here, this is God's concern, is his promise to his people. You know, back in Egypt when they were crying, oh, God, this, we're in bondage here. This is, this is like hell on earth here. And it said, what's it say? It says that he heard their cry and he sent Moses. Right? He, said, he came down and said to Moses, I've heard the cry of my people and I'm sending you. See, this is to call on David's life as king here, right? So just flash forward to the New Testament. Listen to the words of Jesus. Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Is there a yoke? Yes, there is. Was David king? Yes, he was. But listen to these words of Jesus. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's real leadership. That's biblical leadership. Um, remember how the disciples were discussing one day about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus called them and said, Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, the servant king. The idea of servant leadership doesn't start with the words of Jesus. It started long before in the prophecies of the Old Testament about what a king should be and what a leader should be. Whoever would be first among you, Jesus said, must be your slave, even as the Son of Man. Listen, he said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is not the main point we're talking about today, but I have to belabor it because it's important. Even Jesus didn't serve himself. In Deuteronomy 17, I'm not going to put it on the screen. You don't need to look it up. Just listen. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God alone will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. It's all there. It's right there. It's in the, it's in the seeds of those uh, prophetical statements, even back in Deuteronomy. After um, he's in Jerusalem, David's in Jerusalem, and he's established it. Uh, um, chapter 5, he, he, he tells the rest, remainder of chapter 5, uh, tells how he defeated the uh, Philistines in a couple more really key battles, which takes us into chapter 6. And chapter 6 and chapter 7 are our our, uh, official texts for today. Chapter um, 6 records how David brings the ark into the city of Jerusalem, which, of course, contains the story of Uzzah. Uzzah was the guy who reached out to study the ark 
because the, the cart they had the ark on was hit a bump, and he thought maybe the ark was going to fall off, and he reached out and touched the ark to steady it and died immediately on the spot. And it says that God struck him. Actually, it said God broke out against him, which is the same word used in chapter 5 about what God did to the Philistines. You see, it doesn't matter really. Just because you uh, are, are, are his people doesn't mean that, or we are his people, doesn't mean that we are somehow exempt from the rules. Right? But, um, and we could talk about that. Um, the, the law of God said that under no conditions was he to touch that, the ark. But even long before that, there was a major problem here, right? Because if you go back to the book of Numbers, which, and we did make mention of this when we were in Numbers, I mentioned this to you, we, we, I think we talked about it briefly. All of the furniture um, was to be transported specific ways. The ark was under no conditions ever to go on a cart. It was to be carried. So these things, ha and you will notice if you read chapter uh, 6, after this incident, this, <laughs> they, you know, they, they unloaded the ark right there and, and left it, and Dave's going, okay, what am I going to do now? And then they, they learned that the people who were hosing the ark were being blessed, and she said, no, i gotta, I got to get that ark, and i got to bring it into Jerusalem. And this, that time they carried it. It talked about them carrying it. So they, they, were, they were learning here, uh, even, they were, even though they were slow like you and I, tend to be slow. And uh, so they, they bring the ark in, and then there's that scene with uh, Michal. Remember Michal, Saul's daughter Michal, that they, uh, got, Saul had promised uh, to David as his wife? You, you, that was First Samuel. Hopefully you, you read that. But anyways, she looks out the window, and she sees David dancing before the ark. Is he bringing in Jerusalem? You remember that, that passage? And, you know, it's a significant passage. And, you know, so David's just, he's... Um, he just, just couldn't be more more joyful, couldn't be more uh, more excited about what about what was happening and what God was doing, you know. Just try to try. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But try to put yourself in His shoes and try to think of just how big of a deal this is, not not just for David, but for the people, for the nation. And uh, so he was, he was dancing like a crazy guy. And, and uh, Michal looks out the window and sees him, and she's just disgusted. Remember that? That's that passage where he says, she calls him undignified, and he says, you think that's undignified? I can get way more undignified than this. Right? You read it through. It's, 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 it's beautiful. It's raw. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, ESV has contemptible. But King James has vile. Um, but anyways, the idea is that you have, the, it's, about, it's about worship, right? It's about worship. So here you have the, the king ruling in the capital city, fortress city of Jerusalem, and you have the ark of the Lord being brought into the center capital of the nation. So it's all about rulership and worship and uh, at the very heart and center, remember when the wilderness where the ark traveled, the, the tabernacle was set up where? In the very center, all the tribes were to camp around it, and the ark was the very center of that. And so you have this idea of things being centered and going out. Uh, Jerusalem 
just becomes this place. Let me, uh, let me read, and again, I'm not going to put these up, but you've read this. Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord. Uh, no, that's not it. Psalm, 120, Psalm 122, sorry. We'll get that one in a minute. I, re- I rejoice with those who said to me, this is a Psalm of David, okay? I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Psalm 48, not a psalm of David, but Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The city of the great king. Interesting phrase. Jesus picks it up himself. In Matthew chapter 5, he said these words. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. David chose Jerusalem as his capital, but scripture says God chose Jerusalem. And when we hear Jerusalem described as the city of the great king, uh, we need to allow our minds to reflect on that and think about that because as we come into the New Testament, the idea of a king in his kingdom dominates the New Testament. Um, Chapter 7, that's where we're ending today. Chapter 7. Verses 1 to 3. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest, key word, when the Lord had given him rest, we've seen that all the way back, right? Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, that idea of rest, peace, tranquility, security. When the, when the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do what is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan didn't see any issues or any problems with with it. David, you know, wow, sounds like a good idea to me. The Lord's going to be happy with that, I'm sure. Um, But then uh, Nathan went home to bed and went to sleep, and God obviously did some, some work in Nathan that night, and Nathan goes back to David, says, you know what, there's... There is, a, there is an issue here. And uh, you probably know that David does not end up building the temple. Who builds the temple? Solomon. So you all knew that. Right? Those are, those are, everybody knows Solomon built the temple because it's called Solomon's Temple. Right? 
And how was Solomon related to David? Solomon was David's son. Um, David was not the one who built the temple. He wasn't allowed to build the temple. God didn't allow him to do that. God used Solomon to build the temple. But it was in David's heart to build the temple. Because David had a heart for worship. He had a heart for worshiping God. And uh, David didn't build it, wasn't, uh, didn't oversee the construction of the temple, but it is significant that he did, uh, he did um, supply the plan. He did all the planning for the temple. He got all the materials together for the temple. He even, as you probably know, because I, I, I've made allusions to it a number of times here, he even uh, uh, put together all of the instrumentation and all of the music and all the people in place for all of the liturgical worship, all the leaders and so on. He had, he had that all set up. He even purchased the property. There's a, a Second Chronicles 3, you can read about it. He even purchased the property that the temple would be constructed on. And last but not least, he wrote 73 psalms at least. Many of them are psalms of corporate worship. And there, some of them are called songs of ascent, where the people would ascend up to Mount Zion. That's the name's Mount Jerusalem, sometimes called the City of David, sometimes called Mount Zion. Um, uh, the songs of ascent, going up to worship the Lord. And that's where you have Psalm 27. Uh, One thing I've asked of the Lord, Psalm of David, that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David was a worshiper. He worshiped God and he loved to worship with God's people. Let's read from chapter 7, verses 4 through 17, what God has to say to David. Uh, We're not going to read the whole chapter. The last part of the chapter is David's response, which you should read. But the content of God's words to David via Nathan the prophet are contained in verses 4 through 17. And I want us to read those together uh, this morning as we finish up. This is everything that we've talked about this morning so far. We've talked about so we can talk about this right here. This is the high water mark of Old Testament prophecy and history that we're reading right now. This is it right here. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. 
and I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Just brief pause. Saul was all about Saul. Abner was all about Abner. Jesus says, he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Allow God to lift you up. Don't self-promote. That's the way. That's the way of the kingdom. You, you, you know, how does putting other people first? Like, like that doesn't even make sense. What about me? Don't I count? Don't I matter? I'm supposed to act like I don't like I don't even matter. Like your needs matter, my needs don't matter. Like, wow, how can you have a marriage like that? Some of you know exactly how you get a marriage like that. Because it might not make sense in humans' terms, but in God's kingdom, in God's economy, it's the only way that even works. Because when you humble yourself, God will lift you up. When you deny your own self, it's amazing how God will meet your needs. God will meet our needs. Even your need to feel significant, lay it down. Let God exalt his people. And I will, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. And the time that I appoint, from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, and this is where it gets really interesting. So here's the promise of, of rest and security and peace. But here's where it gets really interesting. He says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David said to Nathan, you know, I want to build a house for God. Here we are, here I am living in this palace, this, this great palace of cedar. And, and, and the Lord, you know, is in a tent. His dwelling place amongst us is a tent. I want to make a house for the Lord. And here Nathan comes to David and says, mm, it, that's not what's going to happen. It's not going to be quite like that. Here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to make you a house. He said, well, David's already living in a house of cedar. Well, listen to what he says. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
in accordance with all these words and with accord, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to uh, David. Now, we're out of time, kind of. What's time anyway, really? One thing that you should know about biblical prophecy, if you don't know this yet, you've really been missing out, is, is that whenever the Bible speaks uh, prophetically of future events, it, it, it all, I think pretty much almost always does it in a way that you have double meanings. Uh, similar to how the word house has a double meaning, because the, the word house you know, uh, means a physical structure of sorts. But, but it, it takes on the meaning of uh, lineage or family. Um, it, there's a technical term for that. In, in English, we call that, that a metonym, a word that is associated with something else and takes on the meaning of something else. Uh, an example would be if you were to talking to one of your friends and, and you said something like, wow, um, my wife made some dish last night. You don't mean the plate. You mean the food. But, but that's an example of a metonym. Well, the word house becomes a metonym. Um, and Mary and Joseph made their way to Bethlehem because he was of the house of David, the family of David, the lineage of David. That's not the exciting play on words here. That's the, mo the most exciting play on words here is on the word son. Because God promises David that he will have, that his son will build the house and that he will establish the throne of his son forever. We're talking about an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. And mixed in here, you have references to Solomon. Because it says, for one, for one part, it says, um, um, when, he, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Uh, what verse is that in? Verse 14. That's not talking about Jesus. That's talking about, about uh, Solomon and and a host of other kings that, that sat on the throne of David. Um, but there is tucked in here this, this messianic reference. The word Messiah means anointed one. And it's all so significant as we come into the New Testament. Um, the, the Bible does this. You know, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when God says to, to the serpent, to Satan, uh, I will put enmity between you, you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. In Genesis chapter 12, when God promises Abraham uh, that his seed will inherit the land, Paul picks it up in Galatians chapter 3 and makes it a point. You can read it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, God didn't say seeds. He said seed because he was talking about Jesus. See, we think he was talking about Isaac and Jacob and all of the sons of Jacob and Israel. And he was. But he was also talking about the seed, the offspring. Same as here when God is talking through Nathan about uh, David's uh, family and his lineage. 
He's not just talking about the people of Israel. He's not just talking about David's natural-born children. He's also talking about the son. And, and when you see this and you come into the, the New Testament, you know, there's, there's one word for the New Testament that, that I think um, when you're coming into the New Testament, there's, there's a word that, that came to my mind uh, a while back as I was thinking about this. Times the ten after. It's the word pregnant. The Old Testament is pregnant. When you study the Old Testament, when you read it, and when you prayerfully allow God, when you pray, God, show me what's in here for me. That's the word that comes to my mind when I study these things. You know, we get really excited about it at Christmas time. We get really excited about it. There's this sense of expectation. Well, what, what is the expectation? How can you come into the New Testament without the expectation that's built into the Old Testament? Why are the people so excited? Why is there all this talk when those angels show up and those shepherds and they say, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, how, how do these shepherds even have any idea what they're even talking about? It's, it's all right, this is it right here. And, and I'll tell you one more thing. I, I, I got two more pages of notes I'm not going to look at. But, but, this is called the Davidic Covenant. The theologians call this the Davidic Covenant. Um, there are all kinds of covenants in the Bible, and, and those covenants often have conditions attached to them, and often they go like this. If you do this, I will do this. The Davidic Covenant is an unconditional covenant. It doesn't say... It, there's parts of it where God says if he, you know, if he commits iniquity... I will discipline them. But there's parts in there where he says, he says it in, in no uncertain terms, I will establish his throne forever. Look, if you don't, if you don't, I'm looking for the passage in Revelation. I know I have it, I have it written down. I'll look it up. How many of you have places to be today? How many of you have your Bibles with you? Listen to these words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You've ransomed people to God of every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to God, and they shall reign on earth. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is an everlasting kingdom. The rest and peace that he offers 
is eternal rest and eternal in an eternal kingdom. The gates of the city in Revelation chapter 21 are never closed. All day long, the gates are open. And, 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 in, and at nighttime, it's insignificant because, you know why? Because there is no night there. And all of those promises that culminate in the New Testament account of Jesus are birthed here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, I just want to end with a question, and that is, is he your king? Um, Jen, that song, that second song, uh, Good and Gracious King, the first verse, you sang the first verse. What are the words of that verse? Do you remember? Remember? The, the last part of that first verse, um, can you just pick it up there and read them for me? It's verse, verse one. We sang it, we all sang it together. And I, I was watching you sing it, you sang it quite heartily. Did you find it? Of the first verse. Just read the first verse. Yeah, that's the line there. Nothing in my hand. I approach the throne of glory. Nothing in my hand I bring. But the promise of acceptance of a good and gracious king. When you come to Jesus, he said, Come unto me, all you labor, weary and labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You're coming before the king of glory. You're coming before someone who inherited the promise of the Father for a kingdom that will never pass. A kingdom uh, that is an eternal kingdom. Where you'll never have to be afraid again. You'll never have to fear an enemy forever. Um, let's stand for prayer. So I reiterate the question. Is he, is he your king? Well, a lot of times we use the word savior. We ask people, do you know Jesus is your savior? Which is a good word, a biblical word. But there's something about the word king that I think is really important. Is Jesus your king? Is he, is he ruling on the, on the throne of your life? Every one of us has to, has to answer that question. I hope this morning that you, well, this afternoon, I hope this afternoon you will answer, be able to answer yes. Um, and, I, and I ask that you would pray, pray with me as we close. Lord, thank you for this time and for each one here today. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing together and for what they mean. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the everlasting king and that you have uh, that you are the rightful heir to the throne son of david and that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and that there is uh, no way that your plans will fail and that the security and that the peace and the rest and the forgiveness that you offer 
is from a kingdom that is inevitable and unstoppable. And while we live in this world that's so filled with frustrations and so, so filled with anxiety and fears and stresses, Lord, we thank you that, that in you we have true rest and true peace. And I just pray, Lord, for those who are here who may not be certain of their relationship with you today, Lord, that you would give them uh, the presence of mind and the understanding, spiritual understanding in, in, their, in their hearts, Lord, to acknowledge you as king and to come to you according to your promise and receive the kind of life and peace and rest and victory and hope and salvation that only you can offer. Lord, I pray that you would bring, draw people into your kingdom this day for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.